If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Killers of the Flower Moon, the new historical epic from Martin Scorsese, has been recently released in cinemas. Starring Lily Gladstone, Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro, the movie dramatises a series of murders that were described by the press at the time as the bloodiest chapter in American crime history, and which became the subject of one of the fledgling FBI's first major homicide investigations. David Gran, author of the book on which the film is based, joined us back in 2017 to discuss the conspiracy and the horror of the murder's exposure, its impact on the Native American Osage nation and the breadth of the tragedy. We revisit his conversation with Eleanor Evans. Your book Killers of the Flower Moon explores the story of a series of murders in early 1920s Oklahoma, crimes which were to become the subject of one of the FBI's first major homicide investigations. Uh, The victims of the killings were predominantly members of the Osage Nation in Oklahoma. Can you introduce us to the Osage people and their land, and maybe tell us a bit about how their land came to be of particular significance in the early 20th century America? So the Osage uh, had once controlled much of the Midwest of the country during the 17th century, then controlled all the way from the edge of Arkansas all the way to the edge of the Rockies. And uh, they were a dominant nation. Uh, President Thomas Jefferson in 1803 referred to them as that great nation. He also met with several Osage chiefs the following year and promised that they would be treated like friends. But within a few years, they began to be driven off their lands, and like so many Native American nations, um, were eventually bunched into reservations, losing their territory. The Osage um, ended up in Kansas uh, on a reservation in the 1800s, and they were promised that, okay, you'll finally be safe here and be left alone. But once more, by the 1860s, they were under siege by settlers, there were massacres, they were starving. And they knew they needed to move on. They were being driven off their land again. And an Osage chief famously stood up and he looked across where they could maybe go. And he said, we should go to this land in what would later become uh, Northeast Oklahoma because it's rocky. It's infertile. You can't do agriculture. And maybe the white man will finally leave us alone. So they ended up going to this land and Lo and behold, this land turned out to be sitting upon some of the largest deposits of oil then in the United States. 
And by the early 20th century, the Osage began to become enormously wealthy. And they soon became the wealthiest people, not only in the United States, but per capita in the world. Can you tell us a little bit about how that wealth would be inherited from person to person within the tribe? Many Native American nations were on reservations, and the U.S. government began to force them to break up these reservations. The process was called allotment. And it was done, in theory, they would say, because they wanted to, quote unquote, civilize Native Americans and turn them into private property owners. It was also really done so that it would be easier to obtain their land. And this process happened to the Osage as well. They were allotted and their land was broken up. But the Osage had very cleverly negotiated in their treaty with the U.S. government that they would maintain all the subsurface mineral rights. So what this meant is even when their land began to be broken up, they communally controlled all the rights to what was underneath their land. Now, they had some hints that there was oil, but nobody suspected that it was sitting above these huge deposits. And so they were able to get this into the treaty And sure enough, their surface territory and reservation gradually got gobbled up by settlers and disappeared. But the Osage maintained all this vast area underneath the land, and they really became the world's first underground reservation. And there were only about 2,000 or so Osage, and each one was granted what was called a head right. And a head right essentially meant that they had a share in the mineral trust. So that when prospectors came in and they wanted to lease the land to extract oil, and when they got were able to find oil, they had to pay royalties to the Osage. All this money went into a communal pot, and each Osage who had a head right got a percentage of it, a share of it. And this was called a head right. And a head right could not be sold, and it could not be bought. It could only be inherited. And this was a way to keep that mineral trust within the hands of the Osage. So even as they lost their surface land, they were able to hold on to this underground reservation. They obviously came into this huge wealth. How was it viewed by outsiders and by the government? So just to give you some sense of the Osage wealth, in 1923, these 2,000 or so Osage received what would be the equivalent today of about $400 million. So they were enormously wealthy. And this, of course, belied longstanding stereotypes of Native Americans and American Indians that traced all the way back to the first contact with settlers. And so the press would come out and regale the the populace with stories of, quote unquote, the red millionaires or the quote-unquote, plutocratic Osage, and they would describe how they lived in mansions and how they had chauffeurs. They were shocked to report that um, the Osage had white servants who did their menial tasks. They reported that while each American might own a car, each Osage owned 11 of them. So this caused a great sensation. It also caused a great deal of envy, and many, many people began to want to get some of that wealth for themselves. Uh, And as one Osage chief said, they bunch us up down in this rocks and now that it's worth millions, everybody wants to get a piece of it. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. So the feeling of outsiders was definitely drawn along racial lines, social lines and social prejudices. It's almost hard to imagine. So the Osage were millionaires and they sent their children to the best boarding schools. They were very educated. But the U.S. government passed legislation that forced Osage, who they deemed to be quote-unquote incompetent, which basically just meant you were a full-blood Osage, that they would have to have a guardian, a white guardian, who would oversee their wealth. And what this literally meant is that an Osage who was a millionaire, who may be a chief of a great nation, uh, when he wanted to go to the store and buy toothpaste, he had a white guardian who had to authorize these purchases. And what this opened, not only was it greatly paternalistic and racist, it opened up a system of enormous graft because these guardians began to skim and get kickbacks and to abscond with millions and millions of dollars of the Osage's money. So within this region, we then see where your book explores the Osage reign of terror. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about these killings and how they influenced the society? As the Osage became more and more wealthy, primarily in the early 1920s, they began to be mysteriously murdered one by one uh, for their oil money. And these crimes were astonishing in their breath, in their various means. Um, I describe in the book how one Osage family, a woman named Molly Burkhart, and how her family became a prime target of this conspiracy. And one day in 1921 in May, her sister, older sister Anna, disappeared. A week later, her body was found in a ravine. Uh, She was shot in the back of the head. Her mother soon dies of suspected poisoning. One day, Molly is in her house, and she feels it's about three in the morning. She's sleeping with her husband, and she feels this enormous explosion. This explosion was so powerful, it shook all the houses uh, for miles in the area. Windows were blown out and shattered. People who were sitting on their chairs were literally blown backwards. She got up and went to the window, and she could see where her other sister, she had three other sisters, she had three sisters, uh, where her sister Rita's house had been. And all she could see was a large orange fireball rising into the sky. And somebody had planted a bomb under her sister's house and blown it up, killing her sister, her sister's husband, and a white servant who lived in the house. So this just gives you some sense. There were shootings, there were poisonings, there was a bombing. And these murders began to spread and target uh, various families, not just Molly's family. What was the reaction 
both in the community and uh, the wider public reaction to these murders? Well, within the community, there was a sense of genuine terror. Nobody knew who would become the next target. People literally would string lights up around their houses at night so they would hollow out the darkness with a glow. They were so afraid of predators coming in to get them. People wouldn't open their doors. Children weren't allowed to wander the streets. I mean, this was it was known as the Osage Reign of Terror, and the term Reign of Terror is overused. But in this case, it was appropriate. There was a genuine sense of terror. Nobody who knew who would be the next target. The few people who tried to investigate the crimes were themselves targeted. Uh, one man, uh, an oilman, went to Washington, D.C. to try to get federal uh, officials to help. He brought with him just a Bible and a pistol. He was sent a telegram to the boarding house where he was staying to be careful. That evening after he arrived, he walked out of his boarding house. He was abducted. Somebody put a plastic bag over his head. He was found the next day in a ravine. Uh, he had been uh, strangled to death, his body beaten in. He had been stripped naked. Uh, and this was a warning sign that nobody was safe and that they would hunt you down, uh, not just in Oklahoma. They would hunt you down across the country and that nobody was safe and nobody dare stop it. And so the sense of terror was just palpable. Now, within the white structure, many all the lawmen in the area uh, were white. And so there was a great deal of prejudice. And because of that, many of these crimes went on to be unsolved, not just because people had been targeted, but also because there was just such racial prejudice that people did not treat the victims of these crimes like full-blooded human beings, which they were. And so um, many of the crimes were ignored. Molly Burkhardt, for example, pleaded for the authorities to investigate the cases, and she was often met with indifference. There was also a great deal of corruption at the time, and in some cases, the law enforcement and the establishment was actually complicit in the crimes. Um, so the power structure was, uh, this was a genuine conspiracy, where you had a power structure that was making millions and millions of dollars by pilfering Osage money and by murdering them to get their money. And so there was a complicity, there was a silence, there were willing executioners. And so as part of the tragedy of these cases, the, the way society responded, you know, it's pretty abhorrent that for many years bodies piled up and nobody did a damn thing. You touched on there the pressure that uh, Molly Burkhart applied to get the murders investigated. And also in the book, you mentioned that the Osage people used their own money to fund some of the investigations, which led to the FBI's involvement. Can you talk a little bit about that? It's important to understand that even though this is not that long ago, the 1920s was a remarkably lawless time in the United States. Um, there was very few competent local police forces. There was very little forensics very little training. There was a good deal of corruption. Um, Molly Burkhardt did everything she could to try to get help. She issued using her money to re for rewards. Um, they hired private investigators and there were teams of private investigators, but often the private investigators were themselves easily bought off by the killers or themselves were corrupt. Eventually, the Osage uh, Tribal Council issued a resolution a formal resolution. It's a document I quoted in the book in a very formal way pleading for federal authorities to send in uh, investigators. And eventually these pleas do reach a then very obscure branch, or was then very obscure branch of the Justice Department, the U.S. Justice Department. Uh, the branch then was called the Bureau of Investigation, but we would later know it as the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI. And this became one of the FBI's first major homicide cases. And also, 
one of the first major homicide cases of its new director, J. Edgar Hoover. Can you tell us a little bit about J. Edgar Hoover and how he approached the Osage murders case? So J. Edgar Hoover was named uh, acting director in 1924. He'd been deputy director before. This case actually went to the FBI in 1923 and he was involved as deputy director and then was in charge of the case when he became acting director in 1924. And he was only 29 in 1924. He was then skinny, did not look the way he looked in later life. He had dreams of building a bureaucratic empire, but at the time he was still very insecure in his job. He tried to professionalize the bureau to a large extent and to bring in more formal training, college educations, adopting more forensics. But the bureau initially really badly bungled this case. And for two years, there was no arrests. And most famously, they had made a huge, embarrassing, bloody mistake, which is they got an outlaw, a guy appropriately named Blackie, and they decided they were going to use him as an informant. And so they took him out of prison and they were supposed to keep him under surveillance. But instead, he managed to slip his tail. He proceeded to rob a bank and kill a police officer. So Hoover, facing a potential scandal, last turned the case over to an old frontier lawman, a man named Tom White, a former Texas Ranger. He stood about 6'4". He was an old cowboy who grew up in a log cabin. Um, he did not quite fit the image of the new hires at the, at the Bureau under Hoover. He was not college educated, but Hoover was desperate to get results. And he turned the case over to uh, White, who led the investigation and ended up putting together an undercover team to lead the investigation. And this uh, team was quite extraordinary. He took several old frontier agents. Um, one of them posed as an insurance salesman. Um, before this man had become a lawman, he had actually sold insurance. Incredibly enough, he actually set up a, an insurance office in town on the reservation, and he, sh and he sold real insurance policies. Uh, two other undercover operatives, one in his cattleman, and perhaps most remarkably, an American Indian agent was recruited. And there were no statistics back then, so we don't know for sure. But he was probably the only American Indian agent in the Bureau uh, at the time, especially given the prejudices. Uh, and he went in as well undercover. And they began to infiltrate the region. And they did this partly because there was so much terror. They didn't think they could get people to talk. But they also did it because anyone who was going in to try to stop the killings were being killed. And so... They were marked men, and this was a very dangerous operation. And in many ways, for Tom White, it became both a criminal operation, a, a criminal investigation, but it was almost like a spy operation because there were moles, there were double agents, there were threats of, of triple agents. The operatives were being followed and trailed while they were carrying out their investigations. Um, they were threatening to tear down a very powerful uh, system and structure. And what they began to discover was, first of all, the guardians who had been appointed to, quote unquote, protect um, the Osage and their fortunes were instead themselves, in many cases, most cases, uh, criminals themselves. Um, these were, in theory, the leading citizens in society. They were often bankers and lawmen and politicians. These people were the ones who were guardians, but they were, in effect, using their power to steal and graft. And it's important to understand that there was just an enormous amount of corruption. The Bureau itself, the FBI, 
had just come out of a great oil corruption scandal where members of the Bureau and members of the Justice Department were taking kickbacks from uh, oil men, taking kickbacks from criminals to let them go free. And so the Bureau itself was trying to emerge from its own corruption scandal. So all this corruption, this kind of sinister, garish corruption, is part of the backdrop in which this investigation is taking place. Can you tell us a little bit about the legal system and how it functioned at the time to protect the people who committed these horrible crimes? Law enforcement back in the 1920s, I, I was shocked. I mean, when I begin these stories, I know very little about them. And I spent almost nearly half a decade on this story. And I was shocked by just how a lawless parts of the United States was back then, meaning it was very the legal system was very fragile. Often, if there was justice, it was meted out by the barrel of a gun. There was a great deal of corruption. Most law enforcement did have training. But on a deeper level, many people in these communities, especially where the Osage community, there was so much money. And so law enforcement and politicians were often either directly involved in the crimes, were bought off, or were quietly complicit. And... In many ways, this story, in my eyes, is really about the birth of a modern country, at least the way we think of the United States as a modern country today. It was the birth of uh, the beginning of establishing uh, legal institutions. Initially, when they captured one of the masterminds, one of the main criminals, even when they caught him, they didn't know if they could ever prosecute him because they didn't know if they could get 12 jurors, given the prejudice at the time, to even uh, rule against him despite the abundance of evidence. And so these forces are all working out at this time. And so this is the emergence of American legal institutions, the emergence of more scientific detection, the emergence of what might be called professionalism. Uh, It's a kind of a simple, easy term, but one we tend to take for granted in this day and age. And just to give you an example, Tom White is in many ways the embodiment of this transition, the man who leads the investigation that is uh, successful, at least in many regards. He grew up in a log cabin. His father was a frontier lawman. And when Tom White was young, he watched his father hang a man. This was kind of a time of raw justice. And by the time in the 1920s, when he's leading the investigation, he's struggling to use fingerprints. He is learning about handwriting analysis, which becomes a pivotal part of this case. He is um, wearing a suit and a fedora rather than uh, riding on a horseback carrying a a pearl-handled pistol. And the thing that he hates most is he has to file lots of paperwork. And so he embodies, in many ways, the emergence of the country, uh, of the United States, as we would come to know it. And Also, Molly Burkhardt, in many ways, is a transitional figure. She grew up in a wigwam, which is essentially a lodge. It's like basically a large teepee. And when she was young, she spoke only Osage, and she wore a traditional blanket. And within 30 years, she's living in a mansion with a white husband, with chauffeurs, and speaking English. And so even in her own life, she represents the straddling, as does Tom White, a straddling not only of two centuries, but in many cases, and at least in Molly's case, the straddling of two civilizations. What did the Osage murders case come to represent for J. Edgar Hoover? I mean, Hoover, you could see all the elements of Hoover's character, even early on back then in his earliest stage, which is, you know, he wanted to resolve these cases, but he was probably less concerned with justice 
than he was with his own reputation and cementing his power. And the men and the, the agents and operatives who did the real work to help break uh, at least part of the conspiracy, he would never acknowledge publicly. He then buried them and ignored them or fired them and took the credit himself. And in many ways, the case was important because it represented some of the good side of Hoover, which was the beginning of trying to professionalize law enforcement, to modernize it, to make it more systemic, to adopt more scientific means of detection. He deserves enormous credit for those things. But he also exploited the case to burnish his own reputation and to create himself into what would also become one of the most autocratic and dangerous bureaucrats in the history of the United States. Can you talk a little bit about how the reign of terror was covered up, how it was almost wiped from from memory? What is so shocking in this story is that we often like to think of evil as a singular figure. And in this case, there was one man who was an embodiment in many ways of evil. But we like to think of in a crime story that there's kind of a singular figure. And if you catch that figure and purge it, society returns to normal. But this is a case where the the conspiracy and the conspirators, there were so many of them, many of them on the outside seemed like perfectly ordinary law-abiding citizens, but they were participants and they would cover up the crimes. Uh, Lawmen would cover up murders. People who were burying victims would cover up the fact that The person they were burying had a gunshot wound in their head or that their body had been poisoned. There was a complicity of silence by even those who were not directly profiting. The fact that these people were Osage, that is that they were Native Americans, allowed these crimes to be covered up and to be treated differently than if the victims had been white. And because of that, the crimes went on for many years. And... The truth be said, even though the Bureau was able to resolve many of the cases, and Tom White, who was in many ways a very good man, who was quietly a good man, and there's a lot of goodness in the story, there's not just evil, but even with the Bureau's efforts, that the breadth of the conspiracy was far wider and far darker than the Bureau ever exposed. What are the reasons that have prevented these cases from being found and talked about until your book? Well, I think to some degree, Hoover exploited the case early on, and it, it got a fair amount of attention, especially after some of the some of the criminals were arrested and prosecuted. But by the 1930s, there were other cases that Hoover used from the war on crime. There was Dillinger. There were other outlaws. And he paid less attention to this case. But also, I think the victims don't write history. I mean, it's a cliche, but it's true. And so many of the victims or people, even though they had wealth, were more on the margins of society. And there was a great deal of racial prejudice. And I think there was kind of, whether consciously or unconsciously, an excising of this from history. I mean, I was shocked that I had never read about this case in any books uh, when I was growing up. I mean, this is unquestionably one of the more sinister crimes in American history, uh, one of the worst racial injustices in American history. Also an incredibly important chapter in American history because these forces of the clash between Native Americans and and white settlers was playing itself out in the 20th century. And yet, you know, it was largely ignored. Now, I should make it abundantly clear that it was not ignored by the Osage. The Osage remembered this history to this day. And for them, it's living history. It remains living history. But for most people in the United States and beyond, they've never heard of this. I never heard of this. 
In what context should we remember the Osage Reign of Terror today? Well, I think it's important that we remember this because it is a part of our history. And for too long, it has been overlooked. I think the victims have a right to have their story recorded. And I think the criminals deserve to be remembered. Uh, Often in criminal cases, and this is one where many of the cases did go unresolved, and I think history can come in and hopefully provide at least some accounting where the victim stories are finally heard and memorialized, and also the murderers, at least if they escape justice, at least form face some shame or punishment. I think sorting out some of that is very important. And I also think we do, you know, some of these things are cliches, but we do learn from our past and we need to learn from our past. And, you know, we see elements playing out today now, you know, nearly a century later at Standing Rock, where with the oil pipeline access, which has drawn so many protesters and so many demonstrators from various American Indian nations around the country, because these are issues about tribal sovereignty. Even though the issues between the two cases are very different, the central core that is at stake is about tribal rights and tribal sovereignty, and that hasn't gone away. And so I think it's important to understand the Osage if we're going to deal with issues like that today. That was David Gran, Killers of the Flower Moon, Oil, Money, Murder and the Birth of the FBI is out now, published by Simon & Schuster, and the film is currently showing in cinemas. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. 